Broadcasting from the beautiful Hill Country in Texas, this is OneRadioNetwork.com. Well, a very pleasant good morning to you. Hi there, this is Patrick Timpone, and this is OneRadioNetwork.com, OneRadioNetwork.com. Hope you're having a nice morning, having a little cup of joe, or I don't even know what to call it these days. That was probably politically incorrect. A cup of Josephine, and <laughs> OneRadioNetwork.com. We are on the first Wednesday of the month, and that uh, will bring us to Fred Dashevsky, who's waiting, uh, waiting in the green room with the blue shirt. He looks great, and we're going to talk about the money, the real world of money, and see if we can figure out what the heck is going on in about uh, an hour and a half or so. Uh, David Wolf is going to be here. Uh, David's a cool guy, and uh, I'm sure you've heard of him. And uh, we're going to have some fun and talk about everything that we can uh, get away with without, without getting in, into too much trouble. Fred Dashevsky is a new... What do you call that thing, Fred? What do you are? How do you say that? A new mysticist. You're a new mysticist, right? You're a new mysticist. Yeah, and uh, uh, Fred, which means that he dabbles in gold and silver coins, real American money, and that's what his company is. It's called U.S. Coin Capital, and we'll give you a little shot of it here if I can get it up there. You can see his phone number, and it's pretty cool. Pretty cool. I like it. It's pretty cool. And we talk about it uh, during the week. We mention it every time somebody comes on talking about inflation, and we mention that you can... Uh, Call Fred and get some uh, um, numismatic coins, or you can get some what we call currency silver, which is that uh, the, the pre '65 coins. Hey, Fred, which are silver coins? And do you got any of those around? I mean, inflation's coming. We got to get I some. I do. Uh, becoming becoming incredibly popular. You know, it was sort of a side product for a while. Uh, we had a number of customers over the years that wanted to speculate on the price of silver, and that was their favorite way to do it because the premiums that they carry, even though these are actual dimes and quarters and half dollars minted by the U.S. government uh, up to and only up to 1964, and they never, of course, can make any more of them, they don't actually carry much of a premium even over just the metal content that they're made of. So they've been a very popular product, but uh, the last few years, uh, there's been just a tremendous shift of demand, uh, not only from our company's customers, but across the United States from a lot of investors who are finding this as a very viable method of wealth protection and hedging their bets. And with the growing concerns about what's happening in the economy, more and more people are buying uh, these pre-65 coins to the level where uh, suddenly for the first time in my 38-year career, Hmm. it has become difficult to get. (laughs) There have actually been times where we're sold out of quarters or sold out of dimes or half dollars. And sometimes, you know, it's difficult to get any kind of quantity. It's been very haphazard this year, but uh, we're, we're doing okay with supplies at this point. So give us an idea. If silver is about, what is it, 22 and a half today, this morning, what kind of an upside do we pay for these guys? Uh, well, you know, about probably 20% over the melt value, which, you know, if, if you compare that to something like some of the modern, uh, very popular products like a Silver Eagle, a lot of people have looked at that as a way of buying silver. You know, they, they go for sometimes $10, $12 over the spot price of silver, which means that's, you know, 40% over hmm. their metal value. Uh-huh. So I find the premiums on the quarters and dimes uh, very, very attractive. And I love the fact that, you know, when we're dealing with something where there's a fixed supply, that's always intriguing to me. Yeah. You know, the idea that they can never go back and make more. So no matter what happens, you know, the demand should skyrocket or... You know, people get really concerned about inflation, and we've had pushes on the market for different reasons in the last year or two. And again, supplies just diminish very quickly. And interestingly, their premium, you know, we'll call it, that they carry over melt, Mm -hmm. it has been growing this year. It's gone up four times this year. Really? As the demand continually becoming a problem for the industry in terms of supplies. So Hmm. those people that bought this stuff a year ago, not only uh, have they gained if the price of silver is higher, but they've also seen an increase in that premium value, which is one of the reasons I really like this as a way for people to acquire silver, you know, as opposed to, let's say, just buying, a, you know, a bar, which will never have a premium value over its milk content. Oh, you mean like 10 ounces of silver like, that they sell or whatever you can, you can buy out there on the market? Sure. Yeah. 
or any of the rounds, you know, that, you know, you, again, I've always made the funny joke that if we took a silver bar and stamped, you know, Patrick Timponi's face on a silver round out of a silver bar, it doesn't create any more value for that round than the round had beforehand. So its only value would be, of course, whatever the price of silver underlying it would be. But these old dimes and quarters and halves, not only did they have that metal, do because of that fixed supply, uh, see that a little bit of premium value grow as demand begins to strip supplies. So a really good example of that is the old silver dollars uh, because they ended the production of silver dollars in 1935. They were a little bit rarer than the dimes and the quarters and halves, but they used to trade at the same minimal premiums until about 15 or 20 years ago where because of that supply problem, the premiums grow. Today, you know, to buy a silver dollar, it's about 40 bucks. And you're talking about a silver coin that has $20 worth of melt content. Hmm. So we're at 100% wow. premium on silver dollars, specifically because the uh, coin side of that industry problem has become more focused on the availability. Half dollars are starting to separate themselves now from quarters and dimes. They carry about a 5% additional premium than quarters and dimes do. Again, because of the same issue, there are slightly less halves in the world than there are quarters and dimes. So there's an interesting potential there. Um, you know, not dramatic, but again, it just provides, uh, you know, a two-punch way for people to see a growth, not only the price of silver going up, but also the premium values because of uh, lack of supply availability. So, so there must be uh, a more concerted awareness around, I guess, the world, but we'll just talk about this country as far as inflation with all the news stories, right? And the big deals and the trillion dollar here and the 3.5 trillion dollar there. And as the saying goes, pretty soon you get start talking about real money, right? <laughs> a trillion here and yeah, a trillion. Remember, we used to use the term a billion, remember? A billion here, a billion there. Now it's a trillion here. Wow. Uh, so so, so the word is out there, right? I mean, and you know, you can't trust what the, the what the Fred, I was gonna say Fred, but the Fed is saying, right? Because this guy, they just make it sure. up as they go, right? Well, they've been fudging numbers forever, but you know what has become readily apparent to the public is it's pretty hard to deny the inflation pressures uh, that have been building because it's starting to show up in what we know as the results of inflation. We've always talked about the idea of the two parts. You know, first of all, the creation of the money, mm -hmm. the creation of the expansion of the supply of money, one way or the other, and then the result of that being that it forces prices higher because you now have more money chasing the same number of goods that makes the price go up. On top of that, we've had a number of other fundamental problems in the economies. We have a worldwide economic slowdown that has created an environment where the central banks around the world have all chosen to try to solve that problem simultaneously by various forms of economic stimulation, which is a fancy way of saying we've printed the crap out of money in order to <laughs> Thank move you the very economy much. forward. Thank you for that clarity. We've been doing that. Yeah, I mean, they can get really technical in their, in their obfuscation. Quantitative you know, easing. Don't you love it? Don't you love it? Yeah. yeah, we don't want to call it printing money, but I'll give you a funny idea. So <laughs> everybody has heard recently, and maybe we should backtrack this a little bit, but okay. anyway, the Fed now has been talking about they've been pumping so much money into the economy for so long, uh, we are beginning to see the impact of that. And they're now getting to the point where they're beginning to consider slowing down how much money they're pushing into the economy on a monthly basis. They refer to that as tapering. Tapering. So, the tapering. So the idea is that they're spending 120 billion a month now. They've been doing that for a little over two years, mm -hmm. and they're talking about slowing that down somewhat because they're beginning to see that the intent of pushing all that money is beginning to have the impact they wanted. So with the slowdown that they're anticipating, they haven't done anything yet. In fact, they probably won't even start. Perhaps the end of this year. If not, it'll roll over to the first part of next year. But even with the slowdown in what they're expected to do with their tapering, they will spend more money than they did in QE2. And QE2 was so much money pumped into the economy that people were flabbergasted by the volume of capital that the Fed pushed into the economy. Now we're talking about tapering down to that level, and that's considered positive. I see. Oh, yeah. So you just keep moving up the bar there, Fred. And so now, now we're going to go back. but. 
And that's going to go back to levels that everybody thought was crazy uh, 10 years ago, right? Right. Yeah. So what was considered crazy 10 years ago is now nominal. Now that's <laughs> like, oh, okay, we're back to normal. We're only at QE2 levels now. So this is how ridiculous things have been. Uh, and it's getting hard to hide the problem. Hmm. So costs are going up on everything. Yes, sir. And on top of that, we've got some very interesting manufacturing problems. Uh, I think most people are aware of the shipping problems. They used to talk about, um, you know, three ships off the coast of Long Beach, uh -huh. what, you know, locked up at ports, not being able to unload was considered a big problem. Three right. ships. As of this week, we're at 72. 70, 70 ships are sitting ships. out in the ocean waiting to get unloaded? 70? I have clients in Huntington Beach who say you can't see the ocean anymore. Whoa. All you see is the ship. You, you lost your view of the water. All you see is the ships out late. So, and now we have weird problems like ships anchor hitting an oil line, yeah. causing an oil spill in, in Southern California. So this has got to be, I don't know, let's, get, let's put on our tinfoil hat for a minute. Got to be a bit... A controlled demolition. I mean, you know, they could fix this problem, couldn't they, if they wanted to, whoever they are? The shipping? Uh, well, they could print their way out of the problem. No, no, I mean, couldn't they? I mean, you could just hire more people and, and unload ships 24 7 and, and load these things. And I don't know. That seems uh, that's weird. That's the problem. Yeah, it does. Um, so the problem seems to be just that there aren't enough people to do that work. There aren't enough physical machines to do the work. I mean, even the, you know, the requirements for unloading the physical ships, all of the processes involved in that wow. um, are backed up. Wow. And they're paying more to get ships unloaded. Yeah. What used to say a $500 cost to unload is now $10,000. Oh, good. And those costs will be, will be you know, drifting down through into the uh, consumer's pockets very soon. So we'll see an uptick in prices from the manufacturing and shipping problem on top of all the inflationary pressures. So ah. my point being that it's getting very hard to find a way to hide, you know, this onslaught right. of all of this right. paper money being printed because it's showing up where people can see it. Yeah, it showed up. Uh, I think they tripled the the cost of bringing our saunas in there. They're made in a medical university in Taiwan, so we had to raise. We only mm -hmm. had to raise our sauna prices a, a hundred bucks, which. But then, you know, you know, I was telling you about the, the little special air conditioner we're getting here for the studio, right? And it was, and we ordered it in, in April, and it came in, I think, three weeks ago. Finally, we ordered it in April, and wow. it was three times as three much. Hours. I couldn't even afford it. I said, well, I don't have that kind of, you know, three times as much, Fred. And the guy says, well, I, it's crazy, Patrick. He said, I don't know what to tell you. This is what they're, what they're charging me, three times. Everything is going up in cost. So everything that's imported is going up in cost. Yeah. Not only because we have a strengthening dollar and this massive amount of printing simultaneously, but then on top of that, we add all of these, you know, shipping issues, which are not going to go away anytime soon. By the way, I this don't is think not so. Yeah, going to disappear overnight. This is going to go on for at least a year. And a lot of the big, um, you know, corporate entities that do massive volumes during the holidays, they're already worried. Oh, yeah. about getting in enough products that they want to have on their shelves to sell. So they're trying to order in advance. And, you know, it's October already. So, you know, yeah. I used to goof on this as the month of October because I always used to laugh about October 1st comes around and it always seems like 30 days has gone by and the next thing you know, it's January 1st. It's like October, November, December has somehow, Boom. you know, become one month. They go by so fast. Uh, so here we are at the beginning of October and I don't think we've got all the shells loaded up for the oh, holiday no way. season. No way. Yeah, no way. So there's I mean, going to be a long Freddie, with, with 70 ships out day. there, now when you talk about a ship, that's a container. And they might have... It's a cargo ship. That's a cargo ship. Thousands of containers. They have a thousand containers on each cargo ship? Sure. Whoa. So think about how much product we're talking about, you know, that's laden on these ships. These are not small little boats with a couple of boxes of goodies <laughs> on them. We're talking monster size. Yow, man. You know, ships that are world that we have traditionally used that process because it became less expensive. You know, some companies have tried to shift to go to uh, airlines instead. Oh, you can't. But the it. problem is, you know, a cargo ship takes up a whole airline. Yeah. So you, you can't put a thousand um you know, boxes, crates on, on an airplane. And of course, it's 10 times more expensive. 
and how many flights from Shanghai to you know JFK can there possibly be in a day? So we have a real problem there. But I think this inflation thing is going to catch people by surprise. I think the Fed, um, they're beginning to play games like they have before. The new game now, of course, is we're going to redefine the word transitory. This is my, my favorite Transitory game. inflation, right? Transitory. We're going to just change the, change the definition, Fred? Yeah, I think that's what they're doing. So at first they tried to deny there was inflation. Right. Then they were forced to have to admit it existed. So then they came back and said, okay, well, we admit that there's inflation, but don't worry, it's only transitory. <laughs> now they're saying, well, this transitory inflation might last about a year or a year and a half, which means it's not transitory. So they're basically <laughs> redefining the word in order to make the numbers work. I mean, it's getting absurd. Like Andy used to say, what? Words of art, right? Words of art. These guys Word are, of art. These guys are good. And then isn't it, like, I mean, oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's true. I mean, the September season for so many companies is huge right the, i mean the christmas season it's huge sometimes yes. it could be 25 30 40 percent of their of their year and now right. we have a dr doom fauci you know he's talking about man we just might not have a christmas and then the next day he comes out and says well only if you're vaxxed are you going to be able to do what you want to do and this guy's crazy so you don't know what he's going to say and you know he's going to scare a lot of people from doing anything because people believe this, and I think he's a madman, but that's just me. So, uh, yeah. whoa, and you, and you talk about our GDP, Freddie's not much of happening anyway, right? Our gross domestic product? It is growing. Is know, it? It's starting to see signs of life. Okay. Is, yeah, I mean, it's expected. When you come out of a pandemic and GDP had gone to, you know, down to nothing, any kind of positive forward motion there is gonna look like something. So right. we are getting some nice balance out of the economic growth and it certainly is better than it was but that also is inflationary which is nice in one way because it means we're seeing the economy move forward move a little bit but again it creates kind of a problem for the fed so you know while pushing all this money into the economy was meant to help stimulate economic growth the fed was then charged with the idea of well what happens once it starts working hmm. how do you slow that now down hmm. the problem is they can't raise interest rates until they stop the asset purchase process that has to end first you can't do one and not the other okay let's because unpack that a little same. bit so we understand it because you're pretty geeky but i love the geeky stuff so um so they right now they're buying uh, mortgage-backed securities and buying treasuries about 120 billion a month right that's a, a billion right. i mean you know a month the fed is creating 120 right. on their computer they're buying mortgage-backed securities which is driving housing prices, we can talk about, mm -hmm. and also treasuries. And now you're saying they, they can't uh, do what and do what, walk back and slow that down. Okay, so let's talk about what, what that means. So okay. if the Fed is buying $120 billion a month in, in mortgages and treasuries, right. they are effectively doing the same thing as lowering interest rates. Lowering interest They're making money more available. They're making money more available okay. because they're they're just putting it out Pushing there from out thin air, air, right? They're just right. Okay, I'm with you. They're creating it, and unfortunately, that's how they're doing it. But the result of what they're doing is they're making a lot more money flow through the economy. Okay, which is basically the same thing that you can do by lowering interest rates. So if I want to slow an economy down. I'm going to make it more expensive for you to buy that air conditioner by raising the cost of you to borrow money. Raising and I interest can slow rates. the economy down. Oh, if I raise interest rates. Right. Okay. So what I want to do now is I want to move the economy forward. So I'm going to lower interest rates. Well, I've lowered interest rates and lowered interest rates, and I continue to do that. But now we're down to zero. I'm out of room. <laughs> I've got nowhere else to go. So I still haven't done enough, though. The economy isn't moving forward enough. Right. So now, instead of moving mm -hmm. rates lower, since I can't do that anymore, I'm just going to start printing money and buying treasuries from the Department of Treasury. And I'm going to buy mortgage-backed securities, which effectively is the same result, moving money quicker through the economy. By printing it and pushing it through the economic environment, I'm getting the same result as if I've lowered rates further, which I can no longer do because we're already at zero. So if I were to raise interest rates, but I kept buying mortgage securities, those two negate themselves. They're contradictory. They don't work together. 
one basically is the opposite of the other. So it makes no sense to try to raise interest rates if you're going to still be out there buying mortgage securities. You can't push money into the economy and hope to slow it down if you know and raise rates at the same time. So I got you. The process is the order mm -hmm. of things. The first thing that has to happen before rates go up, the Fed has to stop this ridiculous nonsense of pushing money into the economy by their asset purchases. That has to come to an end first, which is why they are now discussing taper. They're saying we're not going to stop completely. We're going to start tapping the brake a little bit. We're going to slow it down. Eventually, we'll get to zero. Once we've gotten to zero, which let's say that takes six months, maybe a year, then we can start raising interest rates. Okay. So I'm everybody is already beginning to speculate. Yeah. How long will it take for the yeah. Fed to raise rates? When will that happen? Will it happen you know, next year? Will it be sooner, later? So every time the Fed comes out and says anything about tapering, everybody manipulates and moves around and juggles to say, well, okay, that means that we're going to begin to see a little bit of this right. you know, interest rate climb. Right. Watch that 10-year note. If you noticed, it's starting to go up considerably. It's no longer sitting at that 1.3% it's been locked in at for two years. It hit 1.5% this week. And I think it's going to be 1.7 or 1.8 by the end of this year, within the next two months. That 10-year bond yield is starting to go up because people are beginning to recognize the Fed's changing its position from aggressively buying $120 billion a month in this debt to starting to talk about slowing that down. That's why that's cool. Which means that rates should start creeping yeah, but, up. But if you buy a 10-year bond now at 1.5%, and then it goes up to 1.7 or, or or even 2 you lose you lo you've lost money because the thing that you bought at 1.5 is worth less correct that's true i mean compared to the newer one that issues that pays higher like the people that but it's only if it you sell it only if you sell it it would be you're going to lose money correct well it's just it's just you're giving up it's the opportunity cost that okay. you've given up right. so where you locked yourself in because you, again it's a 10-year note you've bought yeah so you said to the government i will give you my money today you will pay me 1.3 percent but i will hold that for 10 years yeah that's my my guarantee to you your guarantee to me is that payment of 1.3 percent a year so you've locked in on that okay well, now the rate goes up to 1.5 percent so now i can go out and buy that same note and get paid 1.5 percent now let's say you have yours you only have two choices. You can hang on to it for the 10 years that you promised you would and, and earn your minimal 1.3%, or you could try to sell your note, but again, it's gonna start getting discounted because yeah. why would I wanna buy your note at 1.3 if I can go out and buy a new one for 1.5? It doesn't mean that somebody won't buy it, but they're gonna progressively pay less and less for yours as those rates continue to creep up. So yeah. it's, it's not a really strong investment people when rates are climbing those are great investments when rates are falling because imagine the opposite imagine if you locked in at 1.5 but then the rate dropped to 1.3 so now as a new investor i can't get the 1.5 you're getting you've already locked yourself in on that i can only get 1.3 now if you wanted to sell me yours well i might pay a premium for it but for buying a buying a bond now at 1.5 for 10 years i mean You'd have to live in, in in Alice in Wonderland to think that there's not going to be higher inflation than 1.5 over the next 10 years, right? The, the way this thing is structured, right. right? Well, that's the negative yielding interest rate environment we're in. So according to the new government statistics, inflation is currently about 53 to 5.4%. Are they admitting that's that much? That's their number now. They're they admitting that yes. much? Wow. Which means it's probably double. To it's probably double. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, and again, I've said this before, and I don't think people think I was crazy, but I'm thinking in the last, you know, between the last year and a half to in the next two or three years, on an average, the increasing costs for an average consumer of basic goods and services is going to be pushing close to 30%. Whoa. Now, wait a minute. Whoa. Whoa. Mm -hmm. you mean, you, so you think like you go out and buy a, a pound of ground beef or milk or I don't know, coffee or something that's going to be 30% higher in the next three years? Yep. Compared what? to, let's say, two years ago, I think between now, from two years ago to the next two years from now, we'll be looking at a roughly 30% increase in cost. 
and, and the problem is, is it happens subtly. And you don't really, you know, yeah. you know, if you see that 1995 price for the pound of beef, you know, the next thing you know, it's $20 and 79 cents. And, right. you know, when it goes from $20 and 79 cents to 21 and a quarter, doesn't feel like a lot of change, but you just keep looking at it. And the next thing you know, it's $22 and $23. And, and you go back and go, wait a minute, wasn't it just 19 and change? <laughs> wait a minute. Now suddenly it's 22, 23. You know, yeah. I went ahead and looked at beef. There was a there was a, a steak for sale, thirty nine ninety nine a pound. I mean, it was supposed to be some extraordinary Kobe. Oh. Beef. I don't know what it was. But yeah, anyway, it was about that, that, that Kobe beef thing, that Kobe beef they call it, or whatever. Yeah, thirty nine ninety nine a pound though. Am I forty dollars <laughs> for a steak? Like this is not a restaurant price. This is just the beef itself. So yeah, I mean oh. that must be a hundred dollar steak at a restaurant. Oh, I tell you. Uh, Fred anyway, Dashevsky yeah, is with us. It is the Real World of Money. We do it the first Monday or the first Wednesday of every month at 10 o'clock Central Time for an hour or so. And uh, you can uh, talk to Fred if you'd like to kind of hedge your, your, your inflationary, whatever you're thinking about, at 800-878-2646. And Fred's got a whole team there. Talk to Fred and his team, and uh, they can, uh, they'll come up and uh, take care of you. And uh, if you want to get some... Uh, Oh, the good old St. Gaudens. Those great coins, Fred, that uh, back in the, in the, in the, what was it? It was the 1920s, uh, uh, right? Is when, when all those babies became available, when they shipped them over to, was that right, in the 20s? They shipped them over to Well, yeah, to they Europe? started production in 1907, and of course uh, ended in 33. Um, there was a long period of time where a lot of these did get shifted over to Europe in the mid-30s. Of course, once we had the gold standard change in 1933, and you could no longer redeem money for gold coins in the United States, you were able to do that in Europe. And a lot of these gold coins did get sent to European central banks in the 1930s. By the late 70s, after Nixon had uh, removed the gold and silver standards from the U.S. dollar, they started floating back into the U.S. But yeah, there was an awful lot of yeah. uh, activity. Those <laughs> are some real fun coins. coins. Let's go on the phones. Uh, good morning. Who's this? You're on the air. Uh, this is Lance from Escondido. Uh, Hi, Lance. You're on the air with Fred Dashevsky. Go ahead. How you doing, Fred? I had a question. Um, so just like when they closed the gold window, you couldn't redeem your dollars for gold and silver. What happened uh, to numismatics versus I guess, bullion, if they were to actually achieve uh, the digital Fed coin and programmable money and all that. I'll take my answer off the air. Yeah, we, we think yeah, that's so coming. It's, it's called the central bank digital coin. That's probably in our life, whether we like it or not. So what would happen to the numismatics? Well, here's the thing. Um, if we move to a, a digital currency, you know, Here's how I look at this. First of all, we are so close to having digital money now that it would be as overwhelming a change as people think. Right. Think about the number of transactions occurring in the world right now in cash. You know, it's getting smaller and smaller all the time. So about everything that most people do is either, you know, through some sort of pay service or credit card. Even if you write a check, I mean, there's no physical cash trading hands there. The banks shift capital from one account to another digitally already. So, you know, if we move to a digital currency, the biggest concern I have is transparency. And that's problematic for me because now we no longer know how quickly the supply of money is exploding. And if I can't count the number of dollars, you know, how do I keep track? So I have a lot of concerns about this. Now, the impact it would have, I think, would be very positive on both bullion and numismatic coins. I think there would be a tremendous drive of capital away from, uh, well, I would refer to it as paper money, we'll call it now, let's say digital money, because people will be concerned of its relative inflation rate increasing. The rate at which the government and the Fed would be able to increase inflation would go up if we were completely on a digital system because it would be so much easier. You know, we could cut out sure. a whole portion of the rigmarole of having to go ahead and having treasuries be bought by the government, you know, through the Fed and then turn into capital and all that nonsense could be stopped. We could just simply create more money. You know, plus, of course, now, um, if you want to get conspiratorial, <laughs> talk about the idea of being able to follow a, a transaction. I mean, if we're on a digital system, 
whatever privacy financially it's we gone. may have at this point in the city, it's, it's gone. over. Yeah, it's over. It's completely it's gone. gone. And I think that concern would drive capital into both numismatics and bullion. And I think um, because of the fixed supply of the numismatic side of the world, the demand increasing and this massive increase in the supply of capital, whether it be digital or paper, would increase the value of those kinds of coins. I think it would be very positive for that. Market. And also, you know, if they pass this 3.5 deal trillion, you know, I don't know, you probably know in there is they want to lower the, the amount that somebody has to get notified to $600 rather than 10000 right? Do you see that? That's in that yeah, bill. Yeah, what they want to do is they, the IRS wants to start following transactions. It, it's, it's more about now that they want to say, okay, we want to prevent the holes in the economy that we can't see. And one of those holes still remains cash. You know, how do they prevent me and, and you uh, from meeting in a, in a parking lot with a briefcase and I hand you a hundred grand in cash and I buy something from you, we both go ways. How do they know about that transaction? They don't. So how they locked it down is by forcing the reportability requirement um, on the banks. Huh. So that means that now you have this briefcase full of cash. What are you going to do with it? You can't put it into your bank account because they've already suggested that it, anything over $10,000 that's put into an account in cash has to be reported. IRS wants the 1099. They want those forms filled out. And they're starting to push these anti-money laundering rules on dealers like myself in bullion transactions, on the banking industry for cash transactions. So the regulatory issues are getting more strict. And now they're talking about this $600 benchmark. So yeah. the IRS is basically, you know, it's just, it's one more proposal that's out there to say, what we'd like to do is to be able to have a record of anything that moves in and out of a bank at more than $600, really? I mean, that's insane. So yeah. effectively, they're going to follow every transaction. Yeah. And uh, that's it. So yeah. That's what they want to uh, do. I'm not a big fan of it. It, it I, really is infringing upon our rights and our privacy. I mean, I, I, I recognize the idea we are in the, you know, surveillance capitalism economy. But we have given up our rights in the last decade or so, more so than any time in my life, to the point where I just don't think we have any financial privacy left, so yeah, there's I worry about it. Yeah. Let, let's take another call. Uh, good morning. Who's this? this week. I, I just had a follow-up question about, um, we know with cryptocurrency, they're going after the regulators to exchange those right. crypto coins into actual dollars. It seems like they're going after the coin dealers to convert our numismatics into back into the market. My question is, I know Andy, when he was alive, he's he had a he had a sneaker network. Were you are you guys opening open to going back to a sneaker network or nothing? <laughs> Where it's just going to be a completely apartheid system of of cash because if we're holding a lot of numismatics and we can't convert them into buying goods and services out in the world and preserving our wealth, is greatly hindered on transition in that. Because that was the biggest thing with Bitcoin is like how are you going to get it out of the system to tangible assets? I'll take my question my okay. answer off there. So I don't know what he was talking on sneaker. What was he talking? About? I get it. You know, so basically, here's the thing: and the numismatic market is still not requiring any reportability at all on my end. The bullion market is. So the bullion world is regulated now. That means that if you sell me, you know, rounds of silver or gold or bars or anything that is not legal currency of the United States, not numismatic. I am required to file a 1099-B with your name and your social security number, and I have to, by law, file that information with IRS. In other words, they've put the onus on me right. as the dealer. And their rationale there is that they don't know what you own or where you bought it or how you paid for it, but if they require me to report any of the checks that I write to people when they sell it, they can capture everybody. This only applies to bullion, though. You, someone can still sell me a million dollars worth of numismatic coins, I am not required to file any forms with any government agencies. Now, the person who sells it, if there's a profit, they are supposed to report that, but at least it's up to them to report their own gain. It doesn't fall on me to have to do it. I don't believe that will change. I think the numismatic market will remain uh, free of these regulations for the simple reason that, as bizarre as this may sound, 
those $20 St. Gaudens we were talking about are legal currency. They're legal tender of the United States. That definition is important. It means that no one can prevent me from using it as money. By federal law, I can spend a St. Gaudens as $20 face value. And because I can do that, and no one can prevent me from doing that legally, the IRS can't claim that that $20 gold coin has any more value than its $20 face value. Because if I wanted to pay the IRS, if I owed them $100, and I gave them five $20 St. Gaudens, and I asked them, how much value are you applying to my debt? They will look at those and say, those are $20. Yes. And if they're going to say they're only $20 when I'm looking to use them to pay them, they can't suggest that they're worth anything more than that on the other end. So this prevents this reportability issue from changing. And I believe that they've defaulted to leave it alone also because the volume of numismatics that exists in the world in terms of its value, it just isn't big enough to be bothered with. I mean, I know there's billions of dollars worth of coins out there, but honestly, relative to the size of the economy, it's it's nothing. So, you know, it's too complicated for the IRS to try to change the constitutional laws about legal currency, the fact that these things are legal status, legal tender. So they're going to leave it alone. And I think the numismatic market will remain unregulated in mm. that sense. Yeah. Now, the bullion market, every year it seems like they ratchet down a little bit more on those reportability requirements. They are now pushing very hard on dealers to follow the anti-money laundering rules, which I do not like at all. Now that indicates to me that, let's say, Patrick, you wanted to give me you know, 10000 in cash. Not only do I have to report it, but somehow I'm supposed to know that you earned that money legitimately. And if it turns out you didn't, I'm going to be liable for encouraging an illegal transaction. You're kidding me. Really? So, and I'm Italian, so you got to worry, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I worry about the, you know, the reportability <laughs> issues. This is why I don't deal in the bullion products at all. Wow. I stick with the numismatics. This... I think people can be safe in their knowledge that the numismatic market will remain, you know, unregulated in that sense. And, you know, and so I don't, the new thing out this morning in the last few days is, Oh, that the uh, the Treasury is just going to create a, a trillion dollar coin and give it to the give it to. Did Three you see? Coins, did sure. you see that? Yeah, yeah just yeah. create a trillion. Come on, Fed's not going to take that. They loaned the they loaned us dollars. You know, you think they're going to take some coin that you, we say is worth a trillion? It's so bogus. You know, I mean, right. these stories come out. I mean, three people sent me this thing this morning. Fed is going to release a trillion dollar coin. Yeah, right. I mean, the U.S. Mint rather not going to happen. Yeah. Don't hold your breath. Yeah, you know. So these things come up as ideas from time to time. And again, it points to the ridiculous nature of the status of our economy <laughs> when these bizarre ideas get floated around and people think, you know, take them seriously. What they're basically saying is, is you know, you and I have talked about this. Couldn't the U.S. government simply print, you know, the $31 trillion that we owe and pay off all of the debt? You know, well, yeah, of course you could do that. Of course, that. they'd bomb the White House, you know. Sure, if you do that. You just don't want to do that, you know. You'd be taking your life in your no, own hands. <laughs> they don't really help. They don't They don't change anything. So, yeah. you know, interesting ideas to float around and kick around for a goof. But, yeah, no, don't don't hold your breath for that. It's not going to You know, yeah. the problem is that the Federal Reserve does not have a good method to resolve the current problems because we're playing from a playbook that doesn't exist. This has never happened before in the U.S. economy where we've carried this much debt, this much interest on the debt, this much spending of money we're not bringing in. The gap between our spending and what we're bringing in is getting wider and wider. The government's needs for money are climbing more and more rapidly. And guess who they're going to lean on when they run out of money? Hello. <laughs> I need to raise your tax, Patrick, because I need more money. And, uh, <laughs> you got some. I don't. So, oh, my God. Your pockets, will you? You know, and I think we're still short close to 400 billion or 350 or 75 on the social security thing, right? I mean, that's people don't know that, but it's underwater now. There is no trust fund, right? So it comes, it's been underwater for a long time, it's been time, right? you know, for a long time. Man. Talk about that lie, but yeah, yeah, that, that, that has actually been bankrupt, yeah, uh, for a long time, and you know, you got to remember back in the Clinton administration and then following that, all of the money that was in the Social Security was replaced by first Treasury bonds, then replaced by bonds from uh, the Treasury Department, 
and then they were replaced by IOUs. And, you know, effectively, we've been floating this nonsense for more than 10 or 15 years now. And we've been basically creating the money every time we need to write checks for Social Security. And then we get to this point now where we have a debt limit coming up, right? So everybody is looking at this now. And this is about, I think we're up to 100 times that we've raised the debt limit. You know, sure. it's just, it's a kabuki theater, you know, it's just let's dance around and make this whole little, you know, gameplay. Um, unfortunately, it becomes a political issue. But we're about October 18th is the point at which Janet Yellen says we're out of money. And, you know, so we play these games where Poor we <laughs> pretend that we have funds. And we talk about that word of art when it came to transitory inflation. They did the same thing when it came to the Social Security, quote unquote, trust. By definition, a trust means that money has been segregated for no other purpose except that for which it was put away. That's a trust. That's the word, right? Well, we violated that. We violated that trust and took the money out of Social Security and dumped it into the regular Treasury in order to create uh, a positive, flowing economic environment. Back in the Clinton administration, we did this. So but it's I, been since the 90s. Didn't Andy teach us, Social though, that Street. that started with LBJ? Didn't he in the unified budget thing way back then? It began then, and it was done for the most part. I mean, the real big swoop was done during the Clinton administration, uh -huh. where, you know, again, Clinton's trick to say, I have a balanced budget, came from them taking the money that was in Social Security's quote-unquote trust fund, dumping it into the general budget and saying, well, look, we have this surplus of money. Therefore, when we balance everything out, we actually look like we have positive cash flow, which was nonsense because that wasn't their money. That's the public's money. That was supposed to be held again in trust. So that trust was violated. We've stripped those funds out. But, and effectively, we've been printing the money we need for Social Security checks every week since then. But you got to believe him because Bill did not have sexual relations with that woman. I mean, you just got to believe Bill. I mean, come on. How can you not believe him? Now, since then, <laughs> things have gotten worse because not only did we strip the money out, but now as the aging of America has continued, what's happening now is we have more people withdrawing from Social Security. Yes, yeah. and are contributing. So even if you presume that the money was in the account, we've been watching it deplete every month, every month, every month, it's getting lower and lower. Why? Because more people are pulling out money than we're putting back in. You know, if you did that in your checking account, if you started with $100,000 and you took out 8,000 every month, but only put in five, you know, you're gonna keep chipping away at your available balance until it gets down to zero. And we've crossed that barrier as well. So uh, that's the point at which people have raised this concern again pretending as if we can ignore the fact that there really wasn't any money in there in the first place, <laughs> even if we presume that there was, we have begun to deplete it because even, we have more You can't even make this up. You know, it's getting to the point where it's so ridiculous that the only, I mean, I don't want to, you know, be throwing you softballs underhand because you do this for a living, but if you don't have real money, man, you've got nothing. I mean, we don't have any idea what this Kabuki Theater is going to do five years from now, Freddie. Sure. We just don't know. Let me tell you something. The most dangerous we don't know. thing we could do as a country is default on our debt. Yeah. If the government can't get its act together and the Republicans and Democrats cannot come to an understanding that they can't play this game, we're playing Russian roulette or chicken, I guess would be a better analogy. Yeah. Um, if somebody doesn't swerve and we crash and we let this go down and do not raise the debt limit, if the United States defaults on a debt instrument, it's game, game over. over. Game over. That's it. Game, game over. It's game over. No one will have confidence in the U.S. government. And again, we are the world's reserve currency. The dollar has been strengthening in the last couple of months, not because we look so great, but even with all of this nonsense we're talking about going on, believe it or not, we're still better off than most other countries that's around the world. I know that's that's because really what's scary, right? We are, as, as Andy used right. to say, and you have said in the past, we're the cleanest, dirty shirt in the closet. And... Uh, what was uh, the other analogy Annie used to use was that all of the currencies are falling out of an airplane with a you know parachute. We just have a bigger parachute, right? We just have a bigger parachute, so we're a falling big... a little slower. That's a great analogy. Because yeah, that's exactly what's happening. So now, if you're somewhere outside the U.S. and you need to park your money somewhere, first of all, your banks are not paying a positive interest rate, even though we know we have negative yielding, like we talked about that. 1.5% 10-year note with a 5.4% inflation rate is actually losing money. Imagine if you couldn't earn 1.5% and you got minus 3%. Yeah. 
on your money. That's what most other countries are offering to their constituents and their, and their citizens. They're saying, we can't even pay you a positive yield. We're going to offer you negative return on your money. And guaranteeing that you'd only lose, let's say, 2% or 1.5% of your money every year is so attractive to you that you're willing to lock money up and say, I'd rather guarantee that I'm only going to lose 1% or 2% than to take the risk of losing more. So I'm going to accept that as a method of buying uh, my future's property values and, and try to retain the value of my capital. I'm going to buy a negative yielding investment on purpose. Yeah. How bizarre is that? That's bizarre. Fred Dushevsky is with us. His company is uscoincapital.com. And you can uh, check him out and give him a call if you'd like at 800-878-2646. It's 878, right? 878-2646. Patrick Timponi, we have a few more. This is exactly why. I'm sorry? This is why a $20 gold coin used to cost. I'm just saying, this is why that $20 gold coin, that St. Gaudens, you know, mid-condition example, used to cost $580, and today it costs $2,500. You know, why did that happen? Wow. The coin is the same. The weight is the same. So what's changed? It's the number of those dollars in paper that you have to use to buy that same coin because of its fixed supply. So I would encourage investors today, hmm. think about what this is going to look like in five years. Yeah. At the rate at which we're printing money and the government is deficit spending, how much do you think it's going to cost to buy that $2,500 St. Gaudens five years from now? It's certainly not going to get cheaper. Can't. And, and people can all, excuse me, they can always, sell, excuse me, they can always sell them, right? No matter what, no matter what shape the economy is. You know, people ask me that all the time. Well, what if this thing just goes, you know, really bites the biscuit, so to speak? You can always sell these coins, can't you, right? You can always sell them. There's, there's always buyers out there. You know, there always is. It's a fluid market. You know, if you think about the stock market in the same sense, there are mm -hmm. always buyers and sellers. Always no buyers what's and going sellers. On. Somebody yeah. wants to liquidate and somebody wants to buy. So, uh, you know, and again, and the, the coin market as it stands, it has fluctuated, but it has been around and has been solidly around for more than 200 years. In other words, we've been buying and selling gold and silver coins in America since before they even built the physical stock exchange wow. on wall street before really? the building was built wow we were already trading in gold and silver coins in america this market has survived everything we've been through great depression recessions every kind of economic environment hyperinflation you know and now what i think we'll be heading toward is more like stagflation again which we haven't seen for a long time but you know um so there's always buyers you can always turn it into money i think people should be putting away a portion of their wealth in this form now because I just don't have confidence that the U.S. paper dollar has any possibility of sustaining its buying power under the current pressures that it's facing. Sure, yeah. Well, that makes sense. What do you make of uh, uh, Fed dude Powell saying that we'll really start to turn kind of a little more bullish on Bitcoin and say that we're not going to mess with it? Wasn't that interesting why he made that comment? What do you think? Well, not mess with it for now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, for now. They're already <laughs> discussing transaction reporting requirements uh, of $10,000 in Bitcoin. So they can apply the same premise. They don't know who bought Bitcoin. Uh, they may not be able to trace the transactions, but what they can do is say, if I want to pay in Bitcoin and that transaction exceeds $10,000 in value, that transaction becomes reported. Of course, of course. And again, they make the dealers responsible for it. So they begin the trap the same way they did with cash. When they started the war on cash, and they began with that $10,000 reporting requirement, they knew that they couldn't go back in time and say, well, who has a stockpile of money under their mattress? I don't know. But if I can make everything that people try to sell or buy reportable, doesn't matter how long they've had it or where they got it, yeah. I've captured that revenue stream and I've prevented those transactions from recurring without my knowledge. I think that's the same thing that's gonna happen with the crypto. I think they will impart these transaction limits. So that will be how they begin to regulate them. Yeah. And we had a, there's no way. Yeah, we had a crypto nerd on from uh, Hong Kong on Monday, Fred. And uh, he said the same thing. And he said that really a lot of the action is going to be going on the, the, the dealers, the people that are buying and selling, you know. And that's where, that's where they're going to know. And they're going to know if Patrick buys a Bitcoin or if you buy a Bitcoin. 
And you know, it's interesting. A lot of you gold guys, and, and I know Andy was really bearish on Bitcoin early on, and he used to call them lampshades. But obviously, they're gonna they're gonna be around. Uh, you know, Bitcoin's not gonna go anywhere. But all in all, I think it's gonna be really bullish for gold and silver. I think that just my own personal opinion that people are gonna see more and more that these things are just little digits and flips and right little puffs of magic, whatever it is, you know, even more so than a dollar, you know, at least a dollar has, sure. the, you know what I mean? And, 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 and start to think about what's really money. I think it's going to be bullish for, for, for gold and silver in the future, just my opinion. Well, I think the, you know, the cryptocurrency thing is, is interesting. And as I've said before, I don't have a problem with anybody that speculates on them. But please don't put them in the same category as a physical ownership of like gold or silver no. coins where there is a tangible, actual item. If I ask you to show me a silver dollar that you bought, you know, you can hold it up to the camera and show me the coin. You can hold it and touch it. If I ask you to show me your Bitcoin, you know, what, what do I get to look at? You know, and is there any real value there or is it just a price? And I've said this before. I think it's an it's an item that has a price, but really no value, which means that there's nothing underlying that supports it, which means nothing can prevent it from dropping. You know, they talk about the volatility of currencies like the cryptos. You know, they're four hundred percent more than an average volatile stock. So if you're not a speculator, it's not something you should even be looking at. Now, if you are nothing wrong with taking a peek at it and you know maybe playing around with it a little bit because you know we don't know for certain what's going to happen in the future with these things but be careful because if a person can come out and make a negative comment and drop the value of an asset by 30 percent that's a big problem well they can do you know, it Elon too, Musk right? comes out and know. And, you know and bitcoin can drop or the other way too i mean it went up 10 percent when powell said his thing on all right. Yeah, it went up ten percent. I mean, that's fifty-five thousand dollars this morning. You know, that's like, you know, you talk about fairy dust, but um, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So great for speculators, but again, I, I view these things in different classes. And again, there's nothing better than the physical ownership of a physical, tangible asset to protect one's wealth. Not even you wouldn't. Would you ever would you ever let somebody else hold your gold and silver coins? No. I think that defeats the whole purpose. I think the idea is that individual people in America need a form of physical wealth that they have control and ownership of. That's why I've only dealt with gold and silver coins for the 38 years I've been mm -hmm. doing this in mm -hmm. one fashion. You, as the investor client, hold immediately get physical delivery of the product. I do not hold or store coins for people. Again, that completely defeats the purpose. The whole idea is that wealth be in your possession, tangible, physical wealth that you own and have control over. And that's the way it should be. Here's an email from Chandra and Craig. Good morning, gentlemen. My husband is an American with a permanent residency in Canada, and I'm Canadian. We live in Canada for now, but with all the societal changes, we may move to the U.S. within the next couple of years. Do you recommend one coin with a dual purpose between the countries, or should we just invest in separate U.S. coins and Canadian coins to cover our bases? Well, I don't deal in the Canadian coins because here in the U.S., of course, like the Maple Leafs and things of that nature are a bullion product. And as we already discussed, you know, I have issues with dealing with bullion products. So, you know, that ends that conversation as far as I'm concerned. It limits, you know, availability. The only thing I would work with would be United States coins. Now, if I were in Canada, you know, again, I might look at things a little bit differently. Um, and I don't know how strong the numismatic market in Canada is, to be honest with you. It's really not something I'm tremendously familiar with. But, you know, since you can own American coins anywhere in the world, uh, if especially if you're planning to move at some point into the United States, and therefore you'd have a you know big market from which to sell. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say you know buy the U.S. coins. I think they make a lot of sense. Yeah, she could just hold on to them anyway because she could always sell them. You know, she lives in Canada, correct? Sure. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So before we go, I this whole 
Fed coin thing, and I know the ECB is looking at it, and, and you just kind of know it's coming. You just see it too much. Um, but I don't understand. Maybe you could have some theories on it. I mean, you're talking about two separate entities, right? The Federal Reserve Bank of New York is a, owned by banks, not federal. We know that. And then you, you would have them issuing coins to people. So that takes the Treasury totally out of the picture. I mean, how would that... I mean, isn't that a whole... That's a whole nother world, isn't it, Fred? It is. Uh, you know, Powell has talked about this to some degree where he said, uh, you know, he's not in a rush to create a digital currency because he said he'd rather do it right than be first. Right. And they have to discuss all of the problems that would be uh, like that involved one. in like, creating. Like that one. Including that one, right? How right. do we fundamentally do it? So, uh, you know, they're at the beginning stages of conversations within the Fed about how it would work. The mechanics of it alone are going to take quite some time to kind of hammer out, you know, including how does it get issued? How does it get controlled? Is the Fed going to be directly creating currency? I don't think so. I think we'll still end up going through uh, Congress. I think the Fed will work through the Treasury Department in the end to do this if they do. But I think we're a long way off from seeing it. Yeah. But I know that the Fed has begun the conversation. And again, my concerns about it are, I think at some point they'll conclude the conversation. They'll hammer out the mechanics. It'll be a couple of years, let's say, from now. They'll come up with an answer of, of how it would work. They'll have worked out all of these issues. And then, you know, suddenly they're going to have to sell the public on the idea, which, again, they'll do by the convenience. You know, it's sure. always the convenience. Yeah, the phone you know, thing. They'll make it seem like oh, it's better for you. If I need to give you money, I don't have to write a check, and you have to wait for it in the mail. And then you deposit. Well, imagine if I could just, you know, punch my keyboard, and boom, Patrick's got more money sure. in his checking account. Well, that's what a lot of people are arguing, that it's going to be a control mechanism too, right? Like if Fred is being a good boy, we can give you more more sure. uh, Fed coins because you've been behaving yourself. And and then maybe did you well, get, vac you did get, you get vaccinated, person. right? Then then you can maybe get more yeah. coins. I mean, you know, this could go, this could really go sideways really quickly, really quickly. Absolutely. I mean, talk about a loss of financial privacy. Whoa. You know, if they get to that point where we've gone exclusively to a digital currency, you're absolutely right. I mean, talk about control. Whoa. If they choose to go that route. <laughs> you don't want to think about you it. You know, they started talking about, um, you know, they used to talk about it in, in uh, the joke was, I want to order a pizza. Right. And we're in a digital world and I get rejected on the order because they come back and say, oh, no. Uh, you know, we think your cholesterol is too high. You shouldn't be eating pizza, so yeah. you can't buy a pizza. And that, that little now, joke is not going to be, you know, someday that may be true. I mean, the, the way, and then people, uh, uh, you know, conjecture, Fred, that that's what this 5G thing is all about, to coordinate this whole thing into a, a cell phone, right? Everything. Control. I saw a, Well, this is the whole point, right? Control over your life Yeah. <laughs> comes down to you think? how much freedom do you have. Right. Well, do you have freedom now, you know, in terms of privacy? Do you have any kind of freedoms now in terms of your uh, intellectual property? Do you have freedoms when it comes to your finances? And this is one of the things that I think we're drifting away from is that yeah. so many transactions and everything we talk about, it's all about reportability, reportability, reportability. You know, this $600 nonsense. I mean, people won't be able to do anything anymore that's private. Now, is that good or bad? You know, we can have that philosophical conversation, but I hate the idea oh. that I have no personal choice and no personal freedom anymore in conducting commerce. I just, you know, I find it abhorrent. I don't think this was the intention uh, of America, you know, to be in that kind of position where we subjugate our, our control to a government agency or, in this case, a banking institution right. to start defining my life because they control the currency I'm forced to use. I, I don't like it. Yeah. Well, I guess, you know, I guess in a perfect, not a perfect world, in a fantasy world, if we just had a whole bunch of our, mm -hmm. our assets in gold coins, we could just sell them whenever we needed dollars and buy stuff. You know, I don't know. Sure. Sure. You know. Well, you know, we had a constitutional requirement for gold and silver for a reason. You know, one of those reasons was to prevent governments from intervening in people's lives. <laughs> and think? that people could know that they could work for a living and earn a dollar and put it away and nobody could interfere with the value of that money therefore controlling their life that was the whole purpose the whole point right gold and silver coinage yeah 
right? It was to avoid governments from interfering, you know, in your life indirectly. You know, if I can't physically stop you from going to the pizza joint, but I can control your money, well, I can still control your actions. And I can start dictating to you based upon all the information I've gathered about you that you voluntarily have given me, thank you, through your, you know, social media and everything that you've told me. I mean, can anybody envision if we went back, let's say, 20 years and I said to you, Patrick, here's what I'd like you to do. I want you to take a picture of yourself, every friend you have. I want you to tell me where they go, what they do, what they like to eat, where they like to travel, how much money they spend, you know, what their favorite things are, what movies they like to go to. And please, would you provide me all of this information on everything that they're doing for the rest of your life? Would you do that for me? No. People would have said, what are you doing? What are you, like, crazy? You know, this is insane. And now we just go on and do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm in Facebook jail right now, so I don't, I don't get to do it because I'm on timeout. Oh, what did yeah. you do now? I'm always in timeout. They put me there 30 days every time I turn around. But we're on Telegram, folks, okay. if you want to see us on Telegram, and you can do what you want. It's a pretty cool place. You don't do the Facebook thing, do you, Freddie? Do you? I do. Yeah, you know, I did it. I started it many years ago because... At first, uh, uh, you know, it was about old contacts, you know, people from sure. high school days. And, you know, when I've been out of New York where I grew up for 30 years. I've been living on Hilton Head. So it was a great way to keep in touch with family and friends. And it was fun. It was, you know, but over the years, you know, it, it drifted from being a fun social media to it started to shift more towards, you know, political. Yeah. And then we started getting the artificial intelligence intervening and what I see on Facebook and how, you know, I get information versus you and all that combined with the way Google operates and the way it has changed. Uh, it's become something I don't think anybody really quite anticipated, but I'm just stunned at, at how much information is available. I mean, if you ever watch the, you know, the cop shows now, you know, uh, any of the police dramas or any of these great movies and stuff, when, when the criminals are being, you know, chased, by the whatever department of, you know, the police department, they're all like, oh, well, well let's track their phone right. or let's check their social media and see what they've been. You know, they've got all of this information at their fingertips. Yeah. How did they get it? You know, we, we provided it to them. We, we gave these rights up very, very readily. I'm afraid people will do the same thing financially when it comes to these, you know, digital dollars because we'll be convinced that the convenience of this outweighs the giving up of your right. rights. I saw an interesting documentary in about uh, in Beijing, and everybody buys everything with their phone. That's all they do. That's what they do. They don't. They don't even have any yen or whatever they use. It's all phone. I mean, I'm talking farmers markets, and they got this little that little code thing, you know, and you just that's what they do. You know, that's what I mean. I said it was so close to a digital world now that. I don't really see a lot changing, really, no. except that loss of privacy. And again, that transparency out the window. Well, Those two things together frighten me. Watch your cholesterol because we want you to have your pizza when you want it, Fred. If you'd like to, if you like, if you'd like to call, if you'd like to call Fred and his team, it's 800-878-2646. 800-878-2646. You're Monday through Friday, like um, kind of like normal business yes. hours, you guys? Ten to five Eastern time, Monday through Friday, I'm at my desk. Of course, I'm working a lot more, but those are the hours at which I tend to be available on the phone. Yeah, and you're willing to talk to just pretty much anybody, even talk show hosts. You'll talk to them. What do you care, right? <laughs> All right, Freddie. Thanks for being here, brother. We'll see you next month. Take care of yourself. Tell our tell your staff hi. Oh, it's a pleasure, Pat. The gang. Thank you very much. See you soon, Fred Jaszewski, the real world of money, and uh, he's a good man. He's honest and he's a forthright and he's not going to try to sell you something that you don't want. You know what I mean? He just is not. And they'll talk to you about your your whole, um, um, you know, your financial situation and what your goals are and all of that cool stuff. So check him out. Uh, um, his number is 800-878-2646. You know this dollar thing is going to go bonkers. So. Get yourself some coins now, gold and silver coins. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and in about 20 minutes, we're going to be here with David Wolf, the lovely and talented David Wolf. Neat guy, interesting fellow. I think you're going to enjoy him if you've never heard him before. 
Well, you've been probably living in a cave, but he's been around. So we will see you in about 20 minutes. Thanks for your ongoing support. Uh, Thanks to Fred, and may the blessings be. Take care. From the Hill Country in Texas, this is OneRadioNetwork.com.